the sonorous nature of my voice through an excellent microphone. It's nice, isn't it? Yeah. I don't like the sound of my voice any other way, to be honest. If I could walk about with headphones on and talk to my kids and shit. I just wish I could speak in reverb. Yeah. That'd be nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you? Should we put it in my just... everyday life? Do you ever do that thing as a singer where they go, and then I, oh, yeah, oh, oh yeah. Up. Yeah, they, they do that little pull away from yeah. the note, don't they? It's too powerful for this microphone. I'm coming back on mic. I love that. Shit. If I think I can't hit a note, I'll pull away a bit. <laughs> yeah. That's when I use that technique. Uh, <laughs> the reverb is on. Uh, we're just going to use a slap back. Uh, oh, that's I great. I love that. What's your favourite reverb, Paddy? <laughs> <laughs> Sunset sound. Ooh, yeah. I love that if, setting. And if that doesn't exist, make it so. Yeah. Sunset sound. It probably is on a garage band somewhere, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I like a spring reverb, but I also like a hall reverb. School hall reverb. Yeah, I like that. So we'll have a bit of that at the front. So it just goes on and on forever? Yeah. That's it. We don't have to say much then. The festival. Here we go. There's really nothing quite like it. How are you guys doing? When you pick the right acts to see, it's musical nirvana. So if given the power of the festival gods to have absolutely any act you desire, alive or not, playing in that perfect spot at the perfect moment, who would you choose? MC5 and Stidgers. Detroit Supernova. I just imagine this is the perfect one. It's going to be Burt Bacharach <gasps> and Friends. I was like, yes! It's such an anthem for yes! that, isn't it? If you're wearing a coat, you go take that coat off, baby, <laughs> and get wet up. Behold, the greatest day of our lives. Ah, yeah, let's go! Welcome to the lineup, you beautiful spirit of Eden. I had a mate called Wayne Turnbull when I was a kid. We both loved Adam and the Ants, and we went up in our bathroom and there was some paint. <laughs> and, I, oh God. and I sat him on the bog and did this big stripe across his nose. <laughs> and we walked outside, went, Dad, look at Wayne. And he went, Patrick, for fuck's sake, what have you done? <laughs> Thank you. My castaway today, sorry, I'll start again. Today's festival curator, that's what I meant to say, is what we in the biz call a triple threat. He's a singer, he's a writer, he's an actor, but he's actually he's a director as well, he's a quadruple threat. He's a photography graduate, he's that a quintuple threat, let's leave that. His film roles have included a Guardian reporter on the he's trailer. He's a jack of all trades. He's a jack of all trades. A master of fuck all. A master of fuck all. Um, Jason Bourne he was after in the Bourne Ultimatum Rob Gretton in 24 Hour Party People uh, a mentally broken boxer in Journeyman which he wrote and directed he also wrote and directed Tower and I saw Hot F he didn't he didn't write and direct Hot Fuzz but he was in it Pride Dead Man's Shoes one of his many collaborations with Shane Meadows on TV he's been a Peaky Blinder a Suspicious Mr Witcher a Suspicious a suspicious yeah. Mr Witcher try saying that after a pint the fantastic Mr Twitcher my Uncle Deck called it <laughs> that's better I can say that and soon to be seen as King Targair Targair Ta yeah how do you listen, say it Sean honestly like uh, nearly a year on that project and I still couldn't pronounce names but I did know my name was 
Um, Viserys Targaryen. That's it, Viserys Targaryen in House of the Dragon, the prequel to Game of Thrones. And as well as music, you know, he's demonstrated his, his incredible love of music, riding the low. He's been in videos for Coldplay, acting Monkeys and Maloko. It's been a colossally long and laboured introduction to Paddy Considine. Dine. Paddy Considine. Oh, thanks, Sean. Thanks for having me. The reason that I got completely stressed out then was because of the King... Go on, say it again. King Viserys Targaryen. The pronunciation, that threw me off your actual name, which is quite awkward. I didn't know how to say it. I, I would avoid saying it to the director and writer for weeks because... <laughs> Did you? Yeah, I just uh, refer to him as him because I didn't know how to say it. And, and pronouncing names on that production was a massive struggle from beginning to end. Even in the last sort of week, people were pronouncing stuff wrong. It's that thing where you, when you really expect to know something and there's that part of your brain that thinks it's going to be such a colossal faux pas to get this wrong. Like, for instance, to get Paddy Considine wrong, you know, in front of him. You know, it, 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 it sort of undermines your mental health to such an extent. And it reminds me of a story of in 1992 when I was doing my first ever job in a sort of metal parts factory in Ducey Street in Manchester. Yeah. And I was working with a guy next to him for months, right? And it, to be fair to me, it was, a, it was a very loud environment. And every Thursday, he, used, he had a car and he used to take us to the local Lloyd so we could cash our uh, paycheck. And then we'd have lunch together. And we had kind of a sweet little relationship, you know. Yeah. Never caught his name, Paddy. You still don't know it to this still day. Still don't know his name to this day. I mean, obviously, I wouldn't. I'd not worked there for 30 years. But I never caught his name. And we, we had this sort of... And I, I kept trying to listen out for other people saying his name like you do, but because it was such a loud environment, I could never pick it up. <laughs> so I spent like nine months relatively close friends with the guy whose name I never never picked up. Do you know... On... <laughs> Sad, isn't it? I'm sure you won't mind me saying this, but on, on the House of the Dragon, I was working with Reese Ifans, and for a year he called one of the writers Matt. <laughs> it wasn't Matt. <laughs> and it wasn't Matt. But the guy never corrected him. <laughs> Never. And on our last day of filming, Reese finally found out that this guy wasn't gone. <laughs> was he mortified, like? Oh, yeah, but it was too funny by then. <laughs> you know, it was all over. But... That's like only fools and horses, isn't it? Oh, oh it's Dave. Dave territory. Dave. Yeah. Oh, absolutely brilliant. <laughs> it's weird to see you in a professional place of work, in inverted commas, because the last two times I've seen you have been in order, walking past you as you were sitting in a Mexican restaurant and shopping for jeans. That's the last time I saw you, yeah. We were in the jean shop, weren't we? About 11 seconds walk, walk away from the studio. Yeah, and you were buying jeans for the Isle of Wight Festival. And I only know that because I saw you that weekend on telly <laughs> wearing some nice jeans. And I thought he must have... <laughs> he collared them around the corner when I saw him. I don't know if... You, I mean, you're a bit younger than I am, but I, I find shopping for any kind of clothing incredibly stressful because I've not got the right shape. And everybody, it seems to me, I don't, I don't think that all the shop assistants have got, got it in for me, but I feel like they have. I feel like they look me up and down and think, you're fat No, you're get. failing, mate. Although it was a, a shop in London, American Classics, and I don't mind giving them a plug because they're good guys. Mm. And I went in there once and I was trying to buy a pair of jeans and the guy that worked in there, I tried a couple of pairs on and he looked at me and I thought they looked okay and he went, nah, mate. <laughs> He says, nah, I'm not selling you them. I can't do that to you. He says, nah. He says, go over there. There was a jean shop over the road. He went, go over there and, and he goes, they'll sort you out, mate. He goes, I can't let you walk out. And, then, and I had so much respect yeah. for his honesty that I've been going back there ever since. That's great. 
Yeah, that's that's the kind of shop assistant I need. Somebody with a bit of honesty. <laughs> well, listen, I am your festival genie today, right? And this is a journey into the endless musical imagination that resides within us all. And I'm going to be needing five acts from you. We're going to build a fantasy festival together, right? It could be living or dead. Okay. You know you know about this bit. Yeah, is this a yeah. complete surprise to you? It is for some people, you know. So, first of all, we need, to, we, we need a name for it, but we can rest that. Where in the world should we put this festival, Paddy? Oh. Burton on Trent? Of all the beautiful places we could go to in the world. And it could be anywhere. You could, If you want, you could do it on you know, the surface of the moon if you want. Nobody's done that, but I think the atmosphere will be pretty poor. What do you think? Anywhere in the world. Oh, mate, what could we do? Anywhere. I think I, I'm going to have to say Burton-on-Trent. Why not? Keep it homestead. It'd be great. You know, it's not far for me to go. I'm still in the neighbourhood. We could have it at the uh, Burton Albion football ground. Mm. Do you know what the uh, capacity of that place is? I mean, obviously, we'd, we'd rip the seats out. I don't, I've never been. I reckon we could get 20,000 people in there, could Easily, we? easily. Did you say you've never been? No. You're not really a football <laughs> fan? Okay. <laughs> I haven't watched football for about 10 years now, no, but it'd just be nice for yeah. people to go along and enjoy that in Burton, yeah. It would, wouldn't it? Give something back to the commun- community. I mean, when Gervais did this, Ricky Gervais, he said a similar thing. He's like, oh, I'm going to do it in Hampstead. I'll just do it in Hampstead and I'll just shut off all the... Oh, I'll shut off my street with security so nobody can come down. <laughs> so, that's a, so you know, similar kind of thing. So we're going to do it in Burton-upon-Trent. That's beautiful. And, yeah, we do need to name it. But do you want do you want to reveal a little bit more about the kind of festival it is and the kind of people that play before you decide on a name? Maybe. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. I'm thinking, I mean, there's so many different avenues. I've, I have thought about it, and I thought about putting on a punk fest. I thought about putting on a sort of uh, a CBGB festival. Oh. That'd be great. That would be, like sort of a really mid to late 70s yeah. New York punk thing. You'd have Suicide opening, you'd have the Ramones on. Blondie would have to play. Blondie television. Television would be amazing. Oh, Jesus. So that's one avenue I've been I've been going down. But and then a punk one, you know, where I, I'd like to see some of the great punk bands in one massive festival. We could call it um, Saliva Fest or something like yeah. that if it's going to be a punk festival, couldn't we? Because there's a lot, there's a lot of gobbin, wasn't there? I couldn't cope with that, mate. No, I couldn't. I couldn't <laughs> cope with that. Like you know, when you see that footage from you know around '77, and, and there's just gob sliding off guitars, and I, I just like I couldn't. I wouldn't have survived it. I, I wouldn't have done stand spitting. I can't. It's one body fluid I can't stand being covered in. Yeah. You know, I, I don't <laughs> mind most the of the others, but yeah, like spit is, I'm really, you know, I'm really squeamish about that. Yeah, it's the sort of, the, the <laughs> violence in the gesture of spitting though, I think as well. And if you put the old hawk before it, they are like, <laughs> for a bit of added sort of punch. That's All right. vile. We'll leave that to one side. Yeah, it's offensive. Check one. Testing. Is everybody ready yet? We good? Well, okay, let's unpack this. So what we're going to do is we're going to start, as you would expect, with the dawn chorus. That's what we call it. So I was going to come and pick you up and drive you over there, but you can walk it from I'm your I'm already house. there, mate. Yeah, I got there about an hour before you even <laughs> called me, so there's no need for that. That's great. Saves me a job. <laughs> what, what were your early music memories? Because am I right in saying that you're five siblings? Yeah, I've an uh, older brother and four sisters, yeah, three of which are older than me. Gosh, so was there a lot of disseminating of, of good music down the, the line to you? I, I reckon I have my brother to thank for that, 
Because when he was younger, not now, but when he was younger, he had really great taste in music. <laughs> I love that. Not now. <laughs> no, he's come back around again now. But um, no, he, he was the guy that, because he was older than me and he started working, you know, he got a job when he yeah. left school and that. So he started bringing in all the, uh, you know, Bowie records and things like that, yeah. and Sparks and stuff like that. So he was the guy bringing that into the house. And I was able to sort of root through them and play them. So I discover things like David Bowie at quite a young age, really. And what era Bowie would that have been, do you think? It would have been. Well, the first album I ever played was uh, The Rise and Fall. Yeah. So, and it was stuff like Starman, you know, when you're that little. And then Aladdin Sane, because, you know, I used to play Time because it had the word wanking in it and I've never <laughs> heard that in a song. <laughs> and when you're like, you know, nine or ten mm. years old, it's, uh, yeah, it's quite a is. shock. Better than Gobbin. Yeah, definitely better than Gobbin. Because that's it seems that, so, speak to so many people, obviously, doing this kind of podcast as well and find out about musical influences, but that that sort of handing down of the from the generations... You oh, know, we from didn't one hand out down, mate. You he just nicked it, it off didn't him. fucking hand anything down, man. <laughs> no, it'd have to be when he won around. And, uh, you know, I remember, like, he came home one day from work and he had the... Uh, Ant Music EP, and I was fanatical about Adam and the Ants. And he, like, had it, and I thought it was for me, bizarrely. It wasn't my birthday or anything, but I thought, oh, my brother's brought me a, a record, you know. And I asked him, is that for me? And he went, no, it ain't for you, you fat little twat. <laughs> and and I, I, like, spent the next hour begging him for it, God. begging him to the point where I was crying my eyes out because I wanted this Adam Ant EP so badly. <laughs> I wouldn't leave him alone and I didn't stop for an hour and I remember he sat in the chair opposite me and I was on the set and he got it and he went fucking have it <laughs> and like frisbeed it like odd me. job yeah and it smacked me in the chest and I just grabbed it like wiped my eyes and ran out of the God. room with it I thought oh. yeah victory so if you cry a lot yeah. and scream eventually you get what you want yeah, you you do, and and what a what a beautiful portrait of familial and brotherly love that you've just painted there. But what's which one? Which one's this? What's his name? This brother? My brother Chubby, Martin. <laughs> yeah, he ain't Chubby. He's, there's nothing on him now. You know, he wasn't particularly Chubby back in the day, but that's his nickname, Chubby. It's funny, isn't it? I mean, you talk to my brother Paul, and he'll he'll relay to you quite a lot of harrowing stories about what it was like being my little brother. It wasn't. I wasn't very pleasant for a very long time. Oh man, I will give this to Chubby. He saved my life twice. Did, actual? Yeah, yeah, he did. What were you doing? What happened? One of them was when I was. Uh, I got this lovely new little dressing gown when I was a little boy, and it used to snow at Christmas then, Sean. <laughs> 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 yes, you might not understand this, the younger generation, the millennials, etc. Just snow. We used to have white Christmases. It was thereabouts, but I, I stood by. We used to have like a, you know, the, the coal fire. And I stood by it, getting a warm in my dressing gown. And the next thing I knew, I was outside being rolled about under an avalanche okay. of snow. <laughs> and fire to yourself. I set fire. Yeah, I caught on fire. And I looked at, when I would like, it rolled me out of the snow and stood me up. There was a massive sort of arch in the back of it that had burnt through. Christ. And I was just about to completely go up in flames. So that was the first time. And then the second time, back in the days when people used to stand in the street and talk to each other. Do you remember those days, Sean? It was around the time when the, the river trend froze over <laughs> and we used to have festivals on it. Yeah, it was back in the day, you know, when people were in the street and they'd... Like Coronation Street. Yeah, lean yeah. on the garden That's gate right. and talk to each other. Well, I had discovered <laughs> Superman and I'd tied like a... Uh, what's that sort of Paddington coat? What, a duffel coat? Yeah. 
I'd got that as my cape and everything. I decided to hang out the top bedroom window <laughs> with about a 20-foot drop. <laughs> and our neighbour, my mum was talking to her neighbour, she went, Pauline, your paddy's hanging out the window. And luckily my brother was there and he ran up and like got me by the hands and pulled me back in. He's just chubby. Otherwise I could have broke both my legs and well, God knows what else. There's so been, thanks, chubby. There'd have been no dead man shoes. No. Just been a dead man. <laughs> Um, I like the fact that Adamant was one of your first obsessions because in 81, I remember me and our arms getting mad into it and to the extent that we got my Auntie Jane to paint a white stripe over our nose and all that. I've got a great story about that, Sean. Am I allowed to tell it whatever I want? Do it. I had a mate called Wayne Turnbull when I was a kid and, you know, we both loved Adam and the Ants and we went up in our bathroom and there was some paint in the corner. (laughs) Like emulsion. (laughs) And I And I sat him on the bog, and I, I like got this smaller paintbrush and did this big stripe across his <laughs> across his nose. And then I was ever so proud of it, and I went, "Oh, you look amazing!" And Wayne thought he looked fantastic as well. And we walked outside, and my dad was on the path. I went, "Dad, look at Wayne!" And he went, "Patrick, for fuck's sake, what have you done?" <laughs> Because that's emotion. <laughs> and then we spent the next 20 minutes, half hour with Wayne. White spirit. Oh, mate, yeah. yeah. Crying his eyes out while I was getting it off him with white spirit. Jesus Christ. It was, a, it was a high-risk strategy being around you lot, wasn't it? Back in the 70s and 80s. It was. Bloody hell. Real highs. He was, Pearl Lab was overcome with emotion. <laughs> well, um, listen, let's get on to the first act because I, I, I want to make sure we get through all of these. So it, it's early. It's early doors. Who's the first bunch of people that's going to come on and entertain the the good burgers of Burton-upon-Trent. It's really difficult It's because it's the opening act. Never said it, it was going to be easy. I I was going to be quite clever about it and I thought, you know, what would be a re- just to ease us into the festival? And I don't want to put people on in terms of hierarchy or anything like yeah. that, but I watched a documentary about Bowie and I can't remember which one it was. There's so many, but it, it was when he played Glastonbury for the first time. Was that like back in '71 or something? Back yeah, that time. Yeah, and it was literally him about six in the morning or something like that, playing in a field to probably a couple of cows yeah. and five people, wearing something diaphanous and possibly <laughs> flammable as well. Yeah, yeah, highly flammable. And there's a, there's a recording of it. You know, it was on this documentary, and it was so delicate. And brilliant. And I thought, gee, I bet nobody really has any memory of yeah. seeing him at that festival for the amount of people that were in that crowd. So I would love to see that set again with that version of Bowie at the early, early doors just to get things. That's a lovely idea. And you, by the way, incidentally, you could, of course you can do that uh, on the lineup. You can choose a, an era of, a, of an artist. You know, it doesn't have to be a greatest hit set or whatever. So that's good. It's very specific. And also there's something quite relevant there isn't there because didn't there's that song isn't there of his memory of a free festival which you know he could play that song that'd be beautiful and yeah. it would be a free fan we're not charging yet for this we've not we've not monetized it yet <laughs> which is ridiculous in this day and age we're seeing money away here we could be making millions but so he could he could perform that as well that sort of underlines how much he he means to you as an artist then i suppose yeah because it, it and also at that time he was on the cusp of a massive transformation because he wasn't fully realized yet i don't quite know the chronology but there was that scenario where he went to new york and yeah. tried to impress the warhol set and all that and they were kind of taking the piss out of him really you know but he was a, he was obviously a sponge and went there and absorbed everything that the you know he needed so he was obviously great at that 
and came home and sort of then started to reshape himself. And and eventually, I guess the beginnings of that resulted in um, Ziggy Stardust. I mean, it it bears the retelling, doesn't it, multiple times, because it, it, it he was almost like a sort of Tyrannosaurus Rex kind of artist at that point, wasn't he? He was kind of a a sort of floaty hippie and he'd he'd been already at that point trying to become famous for seven or eight years yeah. he'd been through all these incarnations like you say there's an allegory between him and, and and actors the fact that you know an actor trying to find his sort of essence of a character before you can carry it forward do you see that in him really yeah there's definitely that i think when he did i think when he developed ziggy i think he developed him over a year or and, and he played him for 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 such a long time and it and it sort of created this mild schizophrenia i suppose it would be in him of like not really knowing who he really was where does he where, where does he begin and where does ziggy sort of end you know it's like you can lose yourself in those kind of things um, have you ever done it have you ever gone a bit methody have you ever thought oh, christ this uh character is overtaking my mind a little bit too much yeah yeah i have i'm not i'm it's just, yeah, I have. I mean, the first film I ever did, where I played this character called Morel, he cons- he was very consuming in a film called A Room for Romeo Brass mm. that um, Shane directed. That was uh, one that consumed me. But he was fun. He was really fun to play, despite how he came over in the film. He was fun to, yeah. to be, and he was f- actually fun to be around. It was only on camera in certain scenes when things got a little bit darker. But... Yeah, I enjoyed being him. Mm. It was fun to be him. So I stayed in character. It wasn't even a, a choice. I've just found myself doing it. And then the only other time, I think, where I've absorbed something so much where the lines start to blur a little bit was when I, I did a film called Journeyman where I played this injured boxer. With Jordy, with Jordy Whittaker. Yeah, it? and there was something just about being that character and being in that world and having that vulnerability that it's, it sounds like a really strange thing to to say, but there's something almost quite comforting about it, having no responsibilities yeah. and things like that and being cared for and yeah. the whole psychology of that was, was quite a seductive thing. It's odd. You know, you can lose yourself in it because ultimately it's, it's an escape from reality yeah. in, in a certain way and you have to be careful how you dance with that. Because, yeah, because reality itself is for each and every one of us, is a bit too hard to face sometimes, isn't it? Yeah. It's nice to, if your job, whatever your job is, is, is sometimes a little turn away from that. It's Sometimes it's not, not that easy to go back, is it? No, it's not. It's not, but it's very fleeting, this thing, you know. Um, I mean, I, I realise in the things that I do, if it's writing music or sometimes acting, particularly on stage, you found, found these moments of transcendence, which were really weird. It's like everything else disappeared around you and... You just escaped into this little sort of world, this little window. It's a very hard thing to yeah. de- to describe, but and it's a really nice place to be. It's your mindfulness. <laughs> it's your meditation, in a sense. Yeah, isn't it? You I know guess what I mean? that's when it. Not, yeah. When everything else falls away. Yeah, it's a bit like when you hear my voice. As yeah, a, everything as that else just effect away. on people. You know, <laughs> it's that closing their eyes and drifting away. Come back. Yeah, um, but it, you can't stay there. No, you can't. You can't stay there. <laughs> no, you bloody can't. Okay, so that's a pretty strong start, and I like what you've done because some people shy away from it. I hope no Bowie fans come at me because no, no. I think, you know, when he, I think it was Honky Dory that yeah, after he'd been to New York with yeah. Warhol and that, wasn't it, that he he came back with that record, which was amazing. But I like it. There's people like um, 
I think Dan from Imagine Dragons started with the Beatles. The first act on was the Beatles. I think I've got that right. So yeah. that, sometimes it's good to just get the big name on first, you know. Let's move through. We're moving to mid-morning matters now for the next stop. David's finished. You know, he's surrounded by beautiful people. But it's time for that next person on stage. I just mentioned mid-morning matters and it made me thought Steve Coogan and you attacking him as Rob Gretton in 24-hour party people. Yeah. While I've mentioned his name, what was it like working with Coogan? I loved working with Steve. I really did. I thought it was great. I mean, when I got the... When I got that... The chance to work on that, and I got sent that script, and I knew who was working on it. It was like a who's who. You got to think of it yeah. at the time that it was being made. You know, you had John Sim in it, and Steve was in it. Um, Andy Circus was in it. Andy was just... I remember Andy sort of saying, you know, we're having a conversation about what he's doing next, and he was, and he said, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to New Zealand to play this, do this Lord of the Rings thing. And I went, oh, what, what, you being in that then? I didn't really know much about it. I'd have seen the cartoon of it or something. <laughs> and I thought it was quite boring, yeah. you know. It looks mm. amazing. But, like, he said, oh, I'm playing this um, golem. And I went, and I thought, what, that fucking little <laughs> green... <laughs> Good luck, mate. Hence why I would never get uh, <laughs> called up for such a part. But And then I remember seeing it eventually and going, oh, Jesus, that's... <laughs> Oh, that's what he was doing. <laughs> You'd probably have turned that down, wouldn't you? Nah, that's shit. <laughs> well, that little green thing. <laughs> Cautious, my precious. I was like, Could've that done thing. Could have done it. Could have done it. Nailed it. Because that's what he sounded like in the cartoon. <laughs> and that's the only reference I had to it. And I thought, oh, right, okay. But yeah. And it was nice um, attacking uh, uh, Steve as Tony over a £30,000 table, I imagine. It was yeah. quite fun. Was that, it looked a bit improvised, all that. Yeah, it was. There was a lot of that going on. Steve was a bit naughty sometimes. You'd improvise a line and then he'd use it in the next oh, I, I, I've heard of people yeah, doing this. Yeah, Steve did that. I don't Bloody care. Actors. Come at me, Steve. Yeah. But you, um, so let's have a think. Who's going to be next? Do you know, I've, I've got a list on my phone and I thought, you know, let's, let's stick to this. But we've just had a little talk about Adam and the Ants. And because it's my festival, I want Adam and the Ants to play. Bloody awesome. And I want them to play the Adam and the Ants around, you know, the sort of late 70s. Like a Dirk Worth White Socks yeah. kind of into Adam so, and the Ants So era. pre-Dirk. Yeah. The kind of, you know, the gigs that were going on around, uh, you know, Soho and when they went to play like Milan and places like that. So they hadn't quite, I think they were just on the verge of signing to Decca maybe and putting out their first single, which I think is Young Parisians. Uh-huh, that but sounds right. that sort of vicious time of Adam and the Ants, you know, when it was very sort of charged, very violent, very sexual, you know. What um, was it that... Because uh, you, you're a bit more of a completist than I am, because we were definitely only on board once he was a superstar. You know what I mean? Prince Charming me and all too, that. Yeah, and Kings of the kid. Wild Frontier. And, yeah, that, as Natalie's just doing through the glass. Yeah. With the, with the fists in the air and the, the white emotion paint across the nose <laughs> is essential. Listen, kids, don't use emotion or gloss, don't for Christ's sake. Just use face paint, okay? But you're talking about this pre-incarnation, like before they were huge. Yeah, yeah, this is it. This is with, uh, you know, different members of the band and things like that. Was Marco still No, Marco's not in them at this okay. point. So it's a, it's a different lineup, mm. and... Um, 
I think that'd be a, a really interesting gig to have seen at the time. I yeah. think I think they were very dangerous. I've just read a book actually by a guy. It was independently published, but he's an Adam and the Ants fan. He was from uh, Bradford, I think, and he wrote his account of like coming down at sixteen years old or ever to London and and going down the King's Road to shop at like sex, sex and seditionaries yeah. and all that, and meeting Jordan and. You know, and then just f by chance watching in the ants when they played with X-ray specs, and then f you know becoming a fan and following them around, and and the violence that was around at the really? time was unbelievable. I I met Adam a few years ago, a couple of times, and I remember him speaking about that, saying how violent those gigs were. He was saying people talked about the Sex Pistols and all the punk. He said, but ants gigs were very very violent. Didn't realise that. So he, I thought you meant like the general punk scene, but specifically at these gigs of theirs, they were quite yeah. fighty. Yeah, you had the punks who were going in there as ant fans, and there was like always skins on the periphery, or or even Ted's, or or what was the equivalent to Casuals at the time. Yeah. That were kind of. It was of, so. Um, what's the word? You had a side, and you had to pick it back yeah. then with music, wasn't it? It was tribal. Yeah, tribal, people yeah. walked around, and and they were identity. They were identified yeah. by the clothes that they wore and the music that they listened to. And even I was aware of that. I mean, my sisters had punks that were boyfriends. You know, our house was a bit of an open house for waifs and strays. So I'd come downstairs as a little kid and there'd be a pair of size 10 Dr. Martins sticking out of one end of a blanket and a Mohican out the other, you know. And you'd be <laughs> like, who's been kicked out of their ass now, you know. Oh, that's a good influence though, isn't it, to a nascent musician? Yeah, but it was. It was very tribal yeah. and you were defined by it. And I didn't particularly see violence or anything like that. I was just a kid, but... I remember even in Burton, it was separated into the mods were outside the county court, the punks were sort of around the loco, this pub, and then the grebs were in the marketplace the at the Oak. The Grebos. So the, would they have been people who 10 years ahead would have been into things like Cart the Unstoppable Sex Machine and stuff like that? You know, sort of docks and... I, I don't know, I think these people... I, I I still see people around now from when I was younger who were like in, into rock music, yeah. you know, the Grebs, and they're still Grebs. Yeah. You know, and people are still punks in a way somehow. You know, they've kept that sort of uniformity even to, to later in life, a lot of people. They're sort of archetypes in a sense, aren't they? Yeah. It's like, um, I think I was a bit more Herc at 100, to be honest, when I was 10 or 11, you know. <laughs> I, was, I was playing it pretty fucking safe. Bit of love plus one on the tennis racket. <laughs> exactly. That was more my <laughs> speed. But that's, and then that transformation that happened with Stuart Goddard, with Adam, how this sort of um, Native American influence came in and, you know, the multiple drums and Marco on the Gretsch guitar. Yeah. And then it became a colossal cultural event, didn't it? It was so weird. Yeah, it was the first person... I mean, that was when I saw him on Top of the Pops. That was a massive awakening in me. It was the music and it was the visual, it was everything. I became obsessed with Adam and the Ants. Well, you did. I remember, like, you know, remember the magazine Look In? Yeah. And they give away free gifts. Yeah. And I remember standing outside a newsagent's and waiting for hours for the delivery to arrive so I could be the first to get this copy of Looking that had a free sort of skull and crossbones on it. Yeah, yeah. Attached to, oh a, my God. to an earring. So, and there's posters all over the walls. But it was the videos as well. They were events. You're like, you, I just couldn't wait for the next um, Adam Ant video to come out. Diana Dawes in, was it Prince Charming? I can't remember yeah, which one of them. Yeah. We are family, wild nobility, we are family. Yeah, it's all coming back to me now. It's all coming. There Marco Merrick, Terry Lee. He was in Gary the room. Tibbs and yours truly. He was in the room. Oh, God, that was so good. <laughs> and he 
was just so fucking beautiful. Yeah, he was amazing. He was yeah. like Elvis to me, like in the sense that it doesn't matter where on the sexual spectrum you are. If you look at a photograph of Elvis in 1958, you want oh, to fuck man, him. Oh man, he's one good looking dude. Well, there you go. So there you go. We've got Adam and the Ants there, and that sort of punk era uh, yeah. set that we're going to get from Adam and his boys on there, which should be very exciting. I look forward to that. How are you doing out there? Are you ready for the next act of the day? People, make some noise! We'll just stop for a moment here. We've got a little lull. It's around lunchtime. We'll talk about food in a minute. But also, I want to ask you about what it's like when you're at festivals. You've talked a little bit about with riding the law and with, with the music and playing gigs and things. We, we could talk about neurodiversity a bit because I'm a bit... I'm waiting for a, a bit of ADHD assistance myself, you know. So I, I feel that I it's taken me a long time to realise it. But I if I'm overstimulated, I react badly. Yeah. And you got an Asperger's diagnosis a few years ago and yeah, Erlen syndrome as well. Yeah. So just can you talk us through that a little bit about what it what it was like to get that diagnosis and did it help you going forward then? Do you know something, Sean? I was kind of going downhill very, very quickly. I felt like I'd been trying to keep afloat for years and years and years. And I didn't know, and I felt like there was something wrong with me in a way. Um, I was struggling so badly in social situations, I st and I still do now, you know, every fucking day. But it's not quite the same, but I was really, really struggling and to the point where it was, it was affecting my life in a really, really bad way. Like, I was going down very, very fast. How were you coping with it? What was your uh, mechanism? Yeah. You know, that's all I could do to cope with it, you know. And, you know, it's like all the masks that I was wearing to sort of deal with day-to-day -day life, they were, they were wearing thin too. And it was just getting down to the sort of final few layers before I was going, I can't really cope with this mm. anymore. It was getting too hard for me because I was, ta I was taking everything very personally and blaming myself for things. But... I didn't realize that I was been carrying this sort of stuff with me all all my life. I'm I'm very mild on this spectrum, but but I am on it and it does it does affect me. But I got to the lowest lowest point for me. Um and I got my diagnosis, but actually the lowest point came after I got diagnosed because I just sort of kept getting the I don't know, I felt a bit of freedom from it. And I understood some of my behaviours now, but I, I had so many people, professionals included, saying, oh, no, you ain't got that. Oh, no, you don't have that. No, 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 I work with people of that, and you ain't got that. And then you, you watch the television, and there's a guy on the undateables with Asperger's, and then people go, well, you're not like that. And you go, no, no, I'm not like that. No, Because it is a spectrum, it's of a course. It's a spectrum yeah. of things, you know. But I had, like, some professional people say to me, oh, no, you haven't got that. And I just felt like, well, what, what am I supposed to do with all this information? I've been diagnosed. I've got people around me telling me I, I'm not or I haven't, and I just didn't know what to do with myself. And it led to a very, very low point for me, a very low point. And I met a great 
man, he's not with us anymore, but he's a beautiful guy who I met in London who was a psychologist and he, he watched me, he observed me and he said to me, you seem to be struggling with light. And I went, what are you on about? He says, you seem to be struggling to look at me. And he suspected I had this condition called Erland syndrome. Never heard of it. And by this point, I'm going, what's Erland syndrome? What the... F another yeah, thing? not another what? thing I've got to think about. Yeah, another bullshit thing for me to think about. And basically, I got diagnosed with having it. Um, and it's a really a brain condition where the brain struggles to process visual information, i.e. the world around yeah. us. And I had it so bad that I could be looking at you now and your face would start to disappear or the background behind you would yeah. start to disappear. And it was frightening. You know, it was frightening and it felt like it was getting worse the older I, I was getting. And I got sort of diagnosed with it and they got, my my, they got it wrong. They got my lenses wrong because um, you have to wear these coloured overlays. And I just thought, fuck this. I couldn't take any more from anybody. And I ended up sort of going to America. I thought, well, if I've got this condition and there's a, somebody in America that can help me, I want to see the woman who's pioneered this shit. I want to go to the top person. So I did. I flew to Los Angeles. I went to Long Beach and I met a woman called Helen Erlen. And I went to her academy and she sat down with me for the day and basically got the right tint for my particular you know, condition for my for my eyes. And I remember you try on lots of different sort of variations of these coloured overlays. And I remember she got this combination and some and I put it, I put them to my eyes and something just started things started to lift. My body just went <laughs> and my breathing changed. Every and it was so overwhelming. Like physiological, yeah, immediate. It, it was too much. It was too overwhelming for me. Everything just, yeah, the whole physiologically just went, I just sort of like deflated. So that's like gen like decades of, of decades internalized of stress being sort of released. Yeah. In a moment, really. Yeah. And then <laughs> I, I, I remember I looked around the room and I said, is this how people see the world? And she went, yeah. <laughs> and I just burst out crying because I realized that for years I just had this buildup. Yeah of all this stress and everything just building inside me and confusion, all of it just came out. So the Erland, what the Erland glasses do for me is the aspergic sort of tendencies that I have, it calms them down. Right. It calms my nervous system and reduces all those things massively. So it makes coping so much wow. easier. So do you have lenses in as we speak? These are you... mine. I, I, if okay. I meet people, I like to take them off because yeah, people yeah. think I'm wearing sunglasses, but these are my... That's great. Lenses okay. that I wear. You it's know? incredible, though. Whatever it is, whatever your neurodiversity is, to have it recognised and to be able to discuss it with somebody and for somebody to acknowledge it, I think, from everybody I've spoken to, it's happened to, it's been an absolute watershed moment in their life. So yeah. We had Shappy Sandy, the comedian, on a few episodes ago, and she had an adult ADHD uh, diagnosis, same thing. So it's amazing, isn't it, yeah. the difference that it makes. I'm so glad that that's been sorted out. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing, you know, and it's been a few years healing it all. And, you know, and I think people get confused. They go, oh, he didn't have the uh, 
autism. He's not on the spectrum. He actually had this, but they go hand in hand. Yeah. Like they, they, you yeah. know, people who have ADHD and uh, it's like ADHD and anxiety and things and all yeah. these different. They're all, all sort of cluster of things, yeah. aren't they? That are related. It's all linked. So these lenses relieve all those sort of feelings. Re don't hundred percent take them away, but they relieve them to yeah. a point where it's much more manageable for me. Amazing, amazing story, actually. Well, okay, so it's lunchtime-ish. We've had bloody David Bowie. We've had Dirt Wars, White Sox, Adam and the Ants. Who are we going to have on next? The Bee Gees. Whoa! Fucking yes! <laughs> oh, finally. I, maybe they've been on before. I can't remember. I've got a very bad memory. Right, just hit me with why the Bee Gees. I've loved the Bee Gees since I was a kid. So the way that I look at the Bee Gees isn't now I'm looking back and going, how, how amazing the Bee Gees were. I've always loved the Bee Gees. One of my mates, his mum gave me his Bee Gees record collection years ago because she was like, oh, I don't listen to these anymore. Who wants them? And he goes, Paddy will have them. <laughs> he loves the Bee Gees. So I've always loved them. I think they're an incredible band and... Uh, I think one of the few times I've ever cried when an artist died, one of them was definitely, I don't mind, you know, one of them was definitely Bowie. Yeah. The other one was Robin Gibb. Yeah. I just, uh, I remember walking the dog over the fields and just putting one of his vocals on and just crying my eyes out because I think he's got the most incredibly beautiful voice and it absolutely destroys me. It's like, I'm going to probably get it wrong now, because three of them sing, of course. Morris, Morris is more of a backing guy, isn't he? Yeah. Barry and Robin tend to do the, the leads, but um, it's like, how can you mend a broken heart, isn't it? Or something like that. When Robin's singing those verses, there's something so vulnerable uh, to me yeah. about his voice. Like, he's, he's fucking heartbroken. Yeah. He the, properly is. There's a fragility mm. in it. And even later stuff like For Whom the Bell Tolls and things like that, when his vocal kicks into that, he puts me away. Yeah. Songs like Alone. All the... Because <laughs> that, was, that was a sort of MTV, like, 90s generation song, wasn't it? Yeah. And it was... And when it just came out of nowhere, because I thought, oh, they've gone a bit off the boil. You know, they did You Win Again in the 80s, and that was great. And then yeah. went the... But Alone is, like, one of the most fucking unbelievable songs of all time, it's isn't it? brilliant, yeah. Absolutely brilliant. Oh, God, yeah, they're going to take our doors off. Yeah. And it would be great because we can get all three of them back together again because yeah. there are no and, rules. And we're going to have a little guest appearance from Andy as well. Oh, lovely Andy, who died so young. Yeah. So much tragedy in that, I in that should, story. I should put them on later, you know, and get the lights and yeah. that, but, you know, it's my festival. Well, you know what you could do is, because well, there are no rules, we can do what we want. We could... Um, we could have a sort of, after the end of the last act, we could have like a 3am disco party. We could get Bee Gees back on to just do all the disco hits. Yeah. You know. Oh, that'd be amazing. That'd be good, wouldn't it? Yeah. Just, that's the just thing. for the VIPs. Yeah, <laughs> oh, the Studio <laughs> 54 bunch. Oh, yeah. Who would that be? I mean, Warhol would be there, wouldn't he? Yeah. Ignoring David Bowie. Yeah. Ignoring 1970. Oh, my God, what's the matter with that guy? He's just so loose. Yeah. I'd like RuPaul to come. Oh. That'd be amazing, wouldn't oh. it? Well, Al Pacino. Yeah. 19, 1978 Al Pacino. Oh, and five for four. Grace Jones. Grace Jones, which well, she's done. A, she's done a couple of spots already on the festival. Uh, Has she? A few people have asked for Grace, so maybe she could even do a little guest spot. I suppose. I quite like to see. What it's your festival for Christ's sake! But while we've got those incredible songwriters up there and they're doing their set, 
we could have just some of the singers that have sung their songs come up, like Dionne Warwick oh, and people like that. Heartbreaker destroys me. The songs that they've written for other people alone just destroys me. You know, when she sings, uh, why do I yeah. have to be a heartbreaker when I was being what you want me to I be? Know. And it kills me because she's not being herself. Yeah. She's being something... It kills me. She absolutely destroys me. Well, you just let's t touch on on riding the low and, and your music as well, because it's such a big part of you and what you do. And and I know you've talked about it before. Because it's bloody awkward, isn't it? If you're already well renowned for something, people are like, "Don't be greedy, mate. Just be, just be, <laughs> just be thankful you're a good actor. Just be thankful you and you're a director." I think British people are like Pe that. Do you find other other <laughs> other like Americans aren't like that so much? No, they're not like that at they're, all. Are they it more encouraging? Matter. Oh, you're good at you're good at something. Yeah, the something more else. You, the more the more you can do, the better. You know, the more selling points. I think. No, oh, I should move to America because <laughs> I'm a polymath as well. <laughs> but, Don't know what you're laughing at. <laughs> <laughs> but what is it like with the band, for instance, you know? Is it still... Because I've read you say things like, when you're an actor, and I'm married to an actor, so I know, right? <laughs> There's a lot of compromise. You know, usually you're reading somebody else's script often. Yeah. You know, you've got another director who's got a vision. Whereas when you're playing the guitar and singing, there's a freedom to, to that. Yeah, yeah, there is. Yeah, when you're an actor, you're 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 interpreting other people's work. That's the art of it, you know, to to bring your interpretation to it, to breathe a character into life, and that's fine. Sometimes I'm pretty good at it. Other times I'm second guessing what people want. I think I've always felt an insecurity with acting because I wasn't trained, and I'm not particularly te very good technical actor. Is that really? Do you really? Oh God, yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah, yeah. God. So, because, because yeah, from from that kind of schooled perspective, from that school yeah. perspective, and I and I think what my aim would be to do in in the best scenario is to have both worlds meet. I'm not so cruel on myself to say that I don't have any talent because that's not true. That'd be that'd be disingenuous. That would be yeah. I accept that, but I think there was always a technical part of my game that was missing. I always found that. I'd be in a room and I'd be doing a scene, and when you see the scene back, I'd go, "But they look like they're actors." I look like I'm on another planet or something. I, I just never felt like I fit in. But is that all. what the, somebody like Shane, is that why they've got you in that room, because of that quality? I think the difference for me, look, I came into it through Romeo Brass. It was improvised. It was very, very improvised. As much as there was a script, it was 90, God, when I was what percent improvised. And there's a freedom in it. Yeah. My problem came when I started getting scripted work. Yeah early on and now I'm going I don't know how to do this or suddenly that freedom I had has gone away and over the years I've had to learn how to find freedom in the text yeah and I never had that sort of training yeah you know I never had that schooling and I want to explore different things if I'm going to be an actor I don't want to play the same part over yeah. and over again but I need a bit of technical ability I always use the story of the boxer Manny Pacquiao who had one good hand you know, and he managed to get very far with one good hand. But when he met Freddie Roach, Freddie taught him how to use both hands. Okay. You know? So and that's it, isn't it? It's it, And you've still got so much to give, haven't you? You've got, you're still a relatively young actor, you know, in yeah. the sense that you've got that whole other chapter of your life where you can grow into it. And yeah. do you feel like that you could develop your skills even more? I don't think it's even started yet. Mm. And I mean, I mean that. I'm going, I don't feel like I've even begun yet. I feel like I did a play called The Ferryman I did it in, and I never planned on doing a play, but I and I did it in the West End, and then I did it on Broadway. I was never good. That was never in the script for me to go to Broadway. 
that was where I got my education in acting. That's where I learned about acting was when I went to Broadway. And three quarters of the way through that run, something just changed within me. And I just went, all you've got to do is tell the story. You put all this pressure on yourself yeah. and all this sort of like, you're trying to find all this shit, but it's right in front of yeah. your eyes. All you've got to do is tell the story. And it's like another weight just left me. But it's like, um, it reminds me of a video I used to watch when I was a kid. I used to be obsessed with the band Cream, right? Yeah. And there's this video of Jack Bruce being interviewed and uh, in 1968 or something. And he's talking about how... I went to the College of Music and I learned all about music and but and, and then I realized I had to unlearn what I had learned to become, you know, to become this instinctive person yeah, and yeah. To, you have to think so much to to get into a role sometimes, don't you? Do you think you can you can overcook it sometimes, I guess? Yeah, I don't I don't really want to do that. I think I have the rawness yeah, still. Yeah, it's more but it's just like, hey Paddy, you know, it's okay to drink a cup of tea in this scene. It's okay to pick something up. It's okay to move around <laughs> and use the room. Those things are yeah, okay. okay. It's okay if you want to put your hand on the other person's shoulder. I can retreat into that slightly sort of autistic place a lot of the time. And it was a trap for me because people would look at me performing things and go, he's beautifully restrained. And I'd go, no, I'm fucking terrified. I'm not beautifully restrained. I don't really know what to do. And sometimes acting to me would be like tennis. You know, there's yeah. your line, there's my line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not when I worked with some directors like when I used to work with Shane... That was different because there was a different freedom in it. But now I'm doing this job and it feels like tennis. I'm learning still and I had to learn how to break that down and go, you, you all times have the right to be alive in that yeah. space. Yeah. You know, to interact, to be a human, to, to, you know, and that comes through me from knowing the lines very well, if it's a scripted job. Because the more I know the lines, the more relaxed I yeah. am. And then I just have to i have to have a dialogue with myself every morning that says, you're allowed to go in there today and interact and act and use things and move things. And, you I, know, I have to tell myself to do these things that come naturally to other people, I think. I find it fascinating. You're inside the actor's studio with Paddy Cantadine <laughs> and Sean Keevney. Uh, yeah, it's, but it is. It's so fascinating to me the whole because I know that from the outside, really good actors make it look easy. Yeah. And I know how fucking hard it is. Yeah, and you know, and once you start thinking about it, it's it's very difficult to come out the other side. Really, sometimes. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, what I neglected to to mention though was that essentially we've got Bowie, we've got Adam and the Ants, we've got the Bee Gees. We're up to the sunset moment now. So, sun's going down behind the trees in the hills of Burton upon Trent, which is a particularly beautiful spot in the world. It has to be said it's, uh, at this, I was going to say crepuscular, I feel like saying. I don't know whether that's right or not. Somebody can Google that and tell me later. Um, before we get the penultimate band on, who is in your festival crew? Who do you go with? You're a very private guy, but you've, you know, you've you protected your family from as much of the, the limelight as possible. Who would you go with? Who would you take to this event? Can I take a load of people? And and yes, and you can take people who are alive or dead. You can take famous people. You can take friends, family, whatever. Oh, I'm not taking any famous people. The, they the two high maintenance, they aren't they? They can get there themselves. They can buy <laughs> a fucking ticket. <laughs> That's what they can do. We've monetized this this week. Yeah, they can buy a ticket. I just go with my wife, my kids. Oh, lovely. Oh, lovely. Uh, and, and some of my close friends. 
Well, I'm already there. So. You're here. Yeah, yeah, I knew you were there. You got there an hour after I did. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, just some nice friends of mine from around the world. Would you take Chubby? Chubby would have to go, wouldn't he? He'd be there, wouldn't he? So do, do all your siblings still live nearby as yeah, well we as you do? Yeah, we all live in Burton, yeah. That's great. Yeah. Oh, that's something I miss so much because I had to move to London like Dick Whittington, yeah. you know. And I miss all that northernness. Well, not that it's northern, but... Chubby comes to see Riding the Low. Oh, does he? Yeah. That's nice. Yeah, he comes to most gigs. And does he does he still offer a kind of uh, slightly elder brotherly sort of a criticism occasionally, just to keep you in your place? But or? let me give you an example. Listen, this is let me give you an example of my brother. <laughs> so I gave him a, a di- he said, "Oh, I want them songs that you you know, so I can play him." And I went, "Yeah, I've got re- some recordings of him." And I sent them to him. And I said, "Oh, Chubby, I've sent you the wrong ones. I guess they haven't got the vocals on." And he said, "Oh, I don't need the fucking vocals." I just listened to the music. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's that's interesting. Cause your brother writes those yeah. lyrics. And that's, my like, that's my bit. That's my bit, you know. So we, I didn't speak to him for a while. <laughs> <laughs> I love the fact that that's, it ne- that dynamic never shifts, does it? Sean, that- it's the fucking record flung across <laughs> the room. But I know he loves me. He'd, he'd do anything for me, man. He it's just his way. I love that. Oh, fucking <laughs> hell. I was wondering why I was enjoying that. It's because your yeah, vocal's not on it. Because your voice ain't on it. <laughs> well, who, do, who should we put on penultimately as the sun goes down? I want to put R.E.M. on. Now, they are a headline band, I know. But well, so is David Bowie, but... Yeah, they all are, really, aren't they? Let's be honest. But I think Monster Era R.E.M. Mm, okay. When they're cracking out the big guitars... Yeah. After document, after automatic for the people. Well, you've got all that body of work yeah. that they can pick from. Yeah. So they're coming out, they're doing all the all the big ones off Monster. You know, what's the frequency, Kenneth and Bang and Blame. Yeah. Star sixty nine. But they've all got they've got all of automatic they can go to and pull out some beautiful great songs. I hadn't thought about that before because I was thinking about because you, you, a few years ago, I was on the radio, I can't remember how it came about, but you sort of said, oh, what about playing um, the Llama Farmers? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Try, get the keys and get go. Get the keys and go, And I was yeah. thinking, oh, the, I can, I'm trying to work out what, what the, the influences are on your songwriting and stuff like that. But of course, R.E.M. must be a quite a big influence and Peter Buck's guitar and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I love R.E.M. I love Stipe as a vocalist, yeah. as a lyricist as well. And I think, yeah, they're just an amazing band all round, all of them. You know, when they were at their height, they still are great, but yeah, I think they've, they're responsible for writing some brilliant songs. They kind of created uh, a genre in a sense as well, really, didn't they? I mean, you know, there were people like people I was obsessed with, like Husker Du in, in America and stuff like that. Uh, it were a similar kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and then just hardcore going off in that direction. But that kind of uh, t- picking up that bird's baton and classic music yeah. and running with it was that's what that was their responsible for, weren't they? Five minutes. Yeah, thing. college like you know the college rock radio yeah. stuff and that, and then just but and they became very mainstream. You know, I, I don't around the time of Green, but my first real thing there's bits of Green that I'd I'd listened to, and then really when Out of Time hit, um, which which is a great great record, and I know it was a very sunny, very commercial moment for them but it, it was a great record all the same yeah they were on a fantastic run then um yeah and, and there's nobody like REM I can't put them with anybody else yeah if you think about that particular time the biggest bands in the world doing that thing there's probably you two 
and Dem. Yeah, and then it, and in this country, it was it became like what became C eighty six and that sort of real sort of homespun indie, which was great as well, which I loved. You know, anybody like the wedding present, the wooden tops, the, yeah. that sort of. You know, that jangly guitar thing. Yeah, there's a, a definitely jangly sort of vibe about it, but there's something else under it as well. There's a bit of darkness under it too, yeah. lurking in there as well. And the, I think Michael's, and I will call him Michael because I did meet him once and record a podcast with him. He didn't he didn't outstay his welcome. He was in and out in 33 <laughs> minutes. Um, but, you know, the lyrics that he purveys, the, the, the sort of quite oblique lyrics, I, I really enjoy that as well. yeah. That's good sundowner stuff, actually. Before you get yanked away, I'm, I'm going to make sure that I get the, the final act of the lineup on, or else I'm sacked as curator. So that's important. Just before I ask who the headliner is, big important question: Does riding the low play? Do you play with any of these these artists? Do you play uh, interstitially? You've got to put yourself on, haven't you? Oh, I think that's. I don't think that's right. Do you? We Fuck just want yeah. to sit back and... Uh, well, in that case, then, we're, yeah, we're going to play. I think you should play. Well, we can't play after the Bee Gees. No, OK. It's difficult to know where to go, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. If I think we could uh, come on and do a number with R.E.M. if right. they'd allow it. Yeah. I mean, I could wander on and do a number with all of them, you really. Could. Yeah, yeah. You could. <laughs> and uh, I just I just imagine your brother at the side going, fucking hell. Oh, God. <laughs> Talk about ruining the one I love. Oh, you know, that'd be great. Yeah, it's all right, mate. <laughs> Fantastic. Brotherly love. One, two. So, okay, it's the, the drum roll. It's the big one. R.E.M. Uh, go off to colossal applause. It's dark now. And, um, you know, we might be, I mean, a few people have probably got a beer on the go. God knows what else. The buzz is building for the final act. Who's it going to be? It's going to be guided by voices. And I know it's so, anybody who knows me going, oh, oh God, all right, mate. It's going to be guided by voices. There's no doubt about it. And the reason it's going to be guided by voices is that band deserved to be heard by more people Listen to yeah. by more people than they actually are. Robert Pollard has got an incredible body of work. Um, over 100 albums he's released. And I think what I'd really love to see more than anything else is Guided by Voices get up there and play to a massive crowd. And I want to see the screens. I want to see yeah. a show, you know, that's worthy of them with visuals and everything else. Now, that's probably not their, you know, it's not their shtick, really. Yeah. But I would love once to see that, then be a headline act and something like that with all the whistles and bells and to just belt out all the greatest songs that, that Bob has ever written. Have you ever met him? Yeah, a few times. Oh, great. Yeah. That, what was it like? Oh, man, I mean, the first time I met him, I was so sort of nervous. I was like... Because it's that thing of about don't meet your heroes, yeah. and Bob is like the the ultimate to me. And I was, I just thought, oh god, I was so nervous. I wanted to meet him, I wanted him to know I existed, yeah. you know. But I was very nervous about it. But he was great, and I, I, it was a show in Kentucky when I met Bob first, and I met his brother and that, and all his pals and things. And and then over the years, I've gone to see them in Iowa and Los Angeles and. And London, and so you're and, also you're kind of a bit like mates, really, in a sense, aren't you? I don't know about. I mean, I don't know about mates. Bob certainly knows that I 
Did um, he ever say to you, "I love, I love, I love you in this particular role"? As he, as he said that. He yeah, did. he loved me in Peaky Blinders. Christ. Yeah. That must have been a buzz. Yeah, it was because I, I wasn't sure if he thought everything else I did before was shit. <laughs> but, he, but he liked, he liked Peaky Blinders. But he's and he's softened as well over the years, Bob. You know, I think he's in a really seem. I don't know him supremely well, but he seems to be in a really fantastic place with everything. And he's still putting out great records. He's got a, a band now, a lineup of which some of them, like Doug Gillard, Kevin March, have been with him for years on and off. Um, but Bobby Bear Jr. and Mark Shue on guitar and bass, um, they're new members, relatively new, and they've just got their output of albums alone with this lineup. It's just a fantastic body of work that needs to be heard. Well, that's a lovely sort of tribute to the band. Uh, and you're right, I think that it's important to talk about bands like that because they aren't huge. And you know, and they they do definitely need a little bit of a leg up sometimes. They need more people to to be aware of the work, and I think this is a wonderful way of doing it for them to close this festival and to be headlining above REM, the Bee Gees, and Adam and Adam and the Ants, yeah. and David Bowie. I think that seems right. And they come out and they've got a song called "High in the Rain," which I really recommend because it's a great anthem. And I want them. This is how the festival ends. They play high. I'm not. I can't tell Bob what to play. Nobody tells Bob what to play. <laughs> But in my mind, I'm going, High in the Rain is the last song. High in the Rain. And yeah. right at the end of the festival, yeah. it starts pissing it down. Oh, and that's every, good. You know, everyone just goes ballistic. Because that is, what do they call it? I was going to say it's like pathetic fallacy, but it's not because we're not in a bad mood. We're in a fantastic mood because we're... It's we're, euphoric, we're yeah. An absolutely emotive, but it's a, a lovely and ironic and perfect piece of, of, of meteorology to fit the end of, of the festival, yeah. which we've not even bothered to name, Paddy. Well, I come from Burton-on-Trent, yeah. which is a brewing town. Oh, yeah. That's what it's famous for, Marston's and Bass. Mm. And, you know, I was going to call it Burt Fest, but we had one of those a few years ago. So I'm just going to call it Brewtown Fest. Brewtown Fest. That's brilliant. I would have said the bitter end or something like oh, that. Oh, God. You see, you're far more creative than I am, Sean. You know, there you go. We'll put, but we could, yeah. we could maybe do a double. I wasn't thinking in that way. <laughs> the bitter end, yeah. There's just so much to go. There's so much more to talk about. And with Riding the Law, are you going to be? Are we going to be seeing you on at festivals? Are we going to see you on on stage at some point? We just heard we've got a, a slot at Glastonbury. Have over. you? Yeah, on the Magic Mushroom stage at two a.m. I didn't. Is that is that a thing? <laughs> yeah, we've just heard we got we got a yeah, slot in the Glade on on the uh... <laughs> Magic Mushroom <laughs> stage. I'm feeling a little bit unusual. And I don't know why. I had a brownie ten minutes ago. Um, what a fantastic way to see you guys uh, riding the low and the new record is, is out now as well um, for everybody to access and get their ears around so they can know what they're listening to when they see the band live it's just phenomenal to have you here it's been such a pleasure such a privilege to see you not in a jean shop not in a Mexican restaurant uh, <laughs> so we can curate our own festival uh, the bitter end stroke brew time no the bitter end's good Let's I think have it's it. a bit better yeah. to be honest what a lineup. Paddy Considine thank you so much for joining us today on the lineup. Cheers, Sean. Thanks, mate. Thank you.